0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 2nd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The relationship between militarism and domestic policing is subtle but important. In their new book, Tyranny Comes Home, Chris Coyne and Abigail Hall detail the shift in policing in America in a more militaristic direction and explain both its causes and consequences. There's an Instagram account that I follow. It is Grateful Legos with one L, and uh, basically a band I like is on tour throughout the United States right now, and they're performing at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. And uh, there's an armed guard just standing there in camo with a very scary-looking uh, semi-automatic Perhaps fully automatic, probably semi-automatic weapon, and the guy says, "I've been going to this venue since 1988, and I've never witnessed armed guards." WTF? And this is an experience that I've seen that I've seen replicated uh, both at venues in the in the private sector, um, and you know when I go to a ballpark now, there are metal detectors at almost every ballpark, and I continue to say that if sports writers ever had to go through them, they wouldn't be there because somebody would raise a stink about it. Um, but it, it seems, you know, and to say nothing of airports, uh, and the way that Americans uh, tend to be treated uh, when it comes to doing things that are twenty years ago completely and totally normal. So when it comes to uh, how we think about the police, is is it your contention that that has just been fundamentally changed, or? Uh, is is do people are people really demanding this sort of thing?
1: And I'd say that the function of policing and the way that police uh conduct their job has fundamentally changed. Um I think people have particularly started noticing it probably from the 1980s. It's become a hot button issue really since Ferguson um you know 2012 2013 or so. Um but it's been something that's been progressively changing over time.
2: I would say it's not just policing either. It is the activities of government that fall under the pur- the purview of security and domestic security. And so policing is one aspect of that. Surveillance is another. Uh, and I think those things have both evolved and changed uh, uh, over the the previous decades. And and uh, both prevent uh, present a, a significant threat to to freedoms, uh, the very freedoms they're supposed to protect. All right. So uh,
0: broadly speaking. Um, your book has a lot to do with this strange and disturbing overlap between uh, how the United States conducts affairs abroad militarily and how that can impact uh, our activities here and how police may view Americans and what kind of tactics police are are likely to use in dealing uh, with uh, their fellow Americans. Uh, so... Let's walk through some of these elements. Surveillance. Um, we've seen, as Matthew Feeney noted when uh, he was speaking with you earlier today, we see this huge increase in the, way, the various ways that police forces use surveillance technology, and courts have had a very difficult time trying to keep up with that. How much of that are we getting from uh, uh, activities that the United States engages in? Outside the United States,
2: a, a a large part of it, and and when we when we talk about it here, surveillance and, and police, it's well, what aspect are we getting? What we're getting is is two key aspects. I would argue one is the the technology, the the actual physical capital that empowers government to operate in an efficient manner, surveilling people, and so that are things. Th- those are things like uh, you know, uh, Stingray technology uh, or, or what are called dirt boxes, these cell phone simulators that allow police to pick up on uh, uh, where uh, cell phone holders are located, uh, as well as some of the data on their cell phones. Those were designed uh, very recently for uh, efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. The other aspect that we're getting is a, a on the demand side. and uh, 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 that's a function of of some citizens or or a percentage of the of the citizenry wanting increased government involvement and and supposed protection. But there's also a supply side as well, which is, you know, governments invest a lot of resources convincing people that there's threats, and convincing people that they can supply uh, um, certain services and goods to protect them. And so it's it's a culmination of all these things together, which are are linked to both foreign interventions abroad, but also open-ended wars, things like the War on Terror, where where the entire world, including domestic soil, is part of the battlefield.
1: Yeah, I would uh, certainly echo that, and just uh, to maybe add on to it a bit further, is that. It's, um, it's, it's difficult to quantify, I guess, what percentage of this is coming from, uh, from foreign battlefields versus what is being developed domestically. I think one of the important things for us to discuss and something that we highlight in our book is that one of the things that occurs as a result of foreign intervention is that when uh, people are done engaging In foreign intervention, they bring not just the technologies, but they bring their skill sets, and they also bring the organizational dynamics of the institutions in which they were operating abroad, and they can utilize those domestically. And in the case of policing, we see that very clearly in a couple of different instances, some dating back to the early 1900s, uh, some a bit more recently. The advent of SWAT teams in the 1970s would be a very clear example of that dynamic, where you have individuals who maybe never Uh, engaged in a foreign intervention. And yet when they're operating within these domestic institutions, whether or not they know it, they're operating within an organizational dynamic, which was a direct result of foreign intervention.
0: So how far back does this go? You mentioned the early 1900s. What does the U.S. experience in the Philippines have to teach us about policing in America today?
1: So I was really surprised when researching the history of policing in the American context to find so much important material that comes out of the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. Um, So the U.S. uh, engages in a brief war in the Philippines to effectively try to oust uh, the Spanish uh, in, I believe it's uh, 1898 is when the conflict erupts. It's the formal conflict's over very briefly, uh, but once the U.S. does not grant uh, freedom to uh, Philippine citizens, it begins uh, an active, like, decade-long resistance. And as part of uh, their attempts to control the insurgency that followed the the formal conflict, they developed what's called the Philippine Constabulary, so a military force tasked with policing civilians. This provided an opportunity for uh, the U.S. military to engage in various methods of social control, which they would not have been able to uh, work on at home. So we talk about things like surveillance. We also talk about torture tactics and things like that. From a policing perspective, um, we get a lot of people who come out of this Philippine constabulary and they're taking that organizational structure, they're taking the attitudes that they developed with them. Uh, Someone who I think uh, exemplifies this most clearly uh, is a man by the name of August Vollmer, who, if you read the policing literature, is known as the father of modern policing. So Vollmer, upon concluding his time in the Philippines and as part of the Philippine constabulary, he comes back. He becomes a police officer uh, in Berkeley, California. He would later become their police chief. He would do a stint as the chief of the LAPD and also worked as a police consultant for a variety of different cities. Why is this important? Bulmer was adamant about bringing the tools that he had developed as a part of his time or his tenure in the Philippine Constabulary in the Philippines. To be used domestically. And so his biographers write things like uh, people were under the impression that martial law was in effect when he was a police chief and he felt that that worked to his advantage. He was... uh, vocal about the fact that he thought police should be run operationally like the military. He set out to attempt to do that. And he spread these ideas, uh, not just in his own locality, so said Berkeley and Los Angeles primarily, uh, but would also impart these ideas to other police forces as they were developing as he was working as a consultant. So that's the earliest place that we see it, but it's not the only place.
0: Uh, in the United States, uh, You know, Abby, you mentioned that People are bringing more than just skills when they return from war. They're bringing uh, uh, tactics. They're bringing uh, an, like an institutional arrangement in which they feel comfortable working, but they bring attitudes as well. So is, is there any evidence that we can point to to say people who have been uh, have served overseas behave somewhat differently when they are placed in a law enforcement capacity?
1: So we we do see some of that. Now, I will preface this by saying that data looking at at attitudes um, is is not always easy to find. Uh, People aren't always forthcoming with this information. Some of the best work on this, particularly as it pertains to the attitudes piece, comes from Radley Balco. Uh, So he's done uh, extensive work on police militarization. And one of the things that he's written on, he wrote an article looking at police clothing. And so when people are off duty and they're wearing uh, T-shirts, what do their T-shirts say? And so uh, some of those things that he found were uh, police officers wearing things like, uh, you know, uh, police helping perpetrators fall down the stairs since 1776, or uh, two to the chest, one to the head is math for cops, uh, things like that. As it particularly pertains to foreign intervention, that's an interesting piece. We have some limited data of knowing that police departments are actively recruiting military personnel. How those military personnel integrate into police departments is an open question because we don't have data about. Uh, people's backgrounds, usually if they're involved, uh, police officers I'm talking about, if they're involved either in like an officer-involved shooting or if they are written up for misconduct. There has been some literature that has looked at and compared Vietnam veterans to veterans of wars involved with with the war on terror. So primarily Iraq and Afghanistan is what they're referring to. So when we're looking at how is it, that being in the military impacts people as a police officer. We can think about that in a couple of different ways. So, uh, people might rightly point out that individuals who are in the military may have characteristics that might be very helpful to them when they engage in police work, and I think that that's absolutely true. Uh, there are some aspects, though, of military training that you don't want to, or historically, founders, uh, politicians, and and others have said we don't want in police officers. So, looking. Uh, bringing in those attitudes of we have to destroy our enemy uh, is not something that we want to be bringing to our civilian police forces. Uh, I think you also see very clearly, in addition to uh, what Ratley Balco has talked about, you see this shift toward the adoption of this warrior mentality for police officers. So you read transcripts from policing conferences, and the keynote speaker is saying things like, Uh, You need to develop your warrior mindset and things like keep your battlefield in front of you and keeps referring to the communities in which police officers are operating as their quote unquote battlefield. When your job is to uphold the rights of individuals, both those who are offended and also those committing the offenses, having those kinds of militaristic attitudes uh, runs counter to what police are historically and I still think in a contemporary context charged to do.
0: When did uh, police start using the word civilian to return to refer to non-cops?
1: Uh, that I don't know. It um, seems
0: like that's been around for a really long time.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure of the of the precise date of that terminology. I'd certainly be curious to know when that became uh, standard procedure.
0: So with respect to you mentioned hardware and uh, specifically with respect to surveillance. But of course, and as you, you mentioned, Radley Balco as well. Uh, a lot of that hardware that comes back and ends up in the hands of police officers is essentially surplus or used military equipment. And to the extent that you're already recruiting uh, members of the military to serve in uh, as uh, members of the uh, police force, uh, maybe that is a comforting thing for a lot of them. But it certainly doesn't necessarily serve the public very well.
2: Certainly, and so uh, you know, while while we in the book we differentiate between human capital, so the skills associated with controlling people, uh, and, and then physical capital, the tools of doing that. But of course, as you correctly point out, there's a, there's a synergy between those things. They they complement one another, uh, and and part of the skills people possess, of course, is how to use hardware, how to use physical capital to best control people, and so uh uh you know from that standpoint it, it kind of compa- the issue compounds itself because you just don't have people coming back with certain attitudes and skills but also they have access in many cases to the various tools that allows them to to be effective in in controlling people domestically so uh
0: broadly speaking um is the public clamoring for this kind of enforcement
1: i think it, it really depends so certainly prior to I think primarily Ferguson, this idea of militarized police, or this question of, do the police have, uh, you know, too much in terms of military equipment? Have we gone or have police uh, gone too far in terms of the adoption of military tactics? So there is relevant pushback, and I think that we've seen more of that now than we've seen historically, certainly. I do think, though, there is a very real push from a large segment of the public for police to act and adopt military tactics. The justification for this position usually goes something to the effect of, well, there's threats from, you know, insert a variety of different groups here. There's threats related to the war on drugs. There's potential for terrorists. And it's usually something like, well, if the people that police are fighting have all of these really uh, enhanced and advanced weaponry, then we're doing a disservice to our police officers by not giving them the most powerful advanced equipment possible. And that's usually the way that the arguments laid out.
0: A lot of this equipment, a lot of these tactics uh, have to pay some sort of dividends. And if the pu- even if the public isn't necessarily clamoring for it, you can imagine that uh, politicians might say, well, look. This kind of, we, you know, future-oriented technology to control people, maybe that's just the way things have to go.
1: I mean, there are certainly some bureaucratic incentives in place, particularly on the part of police departments to utilize the equipment that they've acquired through the Department of Defense. So there are a couple of programs that police departments utilize to get equipment. There's Program 1033, which if people are familiar with this, that's probably the program that they know Uh, That allows for the transfer of surplus military equipment to police departments. There's a separate program that allows for the purchase of new military equipment in case you don't want used. Um, What we see, though, particularly with the 1033 program, is that the incentives are such that police departments will use or incentivize to use this equipment, whether or not it's appropriate. So provision in Uh, the 1033 program, is that police departments are supposed to use the materials that they have acquired within a calendar year, or they're supposed to return them to the DOD. So what incentives does that create? Uh, You're then it's, you see people using uh, armored cars and the SWAT team for training exercises. Or in cases where I think it's very difficult to make a case that it's appropriate. So as opposed to using your SWAT team and your armored personnel carrier for a bank robbery in which there are hostages, you see someone who is threatening to commit suicide in their house and they send the SWAT team. Uh, or uh, this is a bit different than utilizing the equipment, but uh, how or who is acquiring these pieces of equipment. And again, you might make a case for New York City. Maybe NYPD should have a bit more at their disposal than, say, the the town of Keene, New Hampshire. They have a population of 20,000 people. They haven't had a murder since something like 1990. And yet they acquired a Bearcat, which is a mine-resistant personnel carrier, which is supposed to uh, resist IEDs um, and While you might think that the Canadians present a threat, I don't think most people would say that that's a a reasonable usage of that equipment.
0: One of the things you make reference to in this book, which is probably one of the more uh, shocking and unfortunate uh, parts here, is torture and the techniques that uh, have been applied in the United States. And uh, I'm reminded, I think it was uh, Spencer Ackerman a few years ago wrote a piece detailing what was effectively... A black site in Chicago uh, where suspects were taken and held for pretty long periods of time completely off the books and uh, treated very poorly.
2: yeah. and we talk about this exact case in in the book. And so torture, you know, is going to be it's it's a jarring thing for people to hear because, of course, you know, ordinary people say well, we don't observe torture in, in daily life in America. Uh, and it's true; it's not prevalent in, in in people's ordinary lives, but it is prevalent in certain institutions within America. The 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 prison system being one of them. Uh, and uh, if if you look, uh, what what has happened is that uh, in the case that you pointed out in Chicago, the perpetrators of that, uh, John Burge being uh, uh, the main one, uh, all had experience, or or many of them had experience abroad, uh, in Vietnam. Uh, and of course, uh, part of what the, 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 the tactics empl- employed by the American military in Vietnam was torture, uh, and, uh, uh, in a variety of forms, uh, one, one form called the water cure, which is, uh, basically pumping the victim's uh, stomach full of water. Um, so it's, it's, a related to, to waterboarding different, but, but similar type effects. Uh, and, uh, and, uh. Uh, These type of techniques were brought back to to America. Uh, 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 There there is uh, what it's called, the the Vietnam Special, right?
1: Yeah. So one of the techniques that was developed particularly in the Vietnam War and elsewhere is the use of clean torture techniques. So what they mean by that is torture techniques, which when done correctly, don't leave a mark on the person being tortured. So it provides uh, cover for the individuals conducting the torture. Um, And so what Chris is referring to is when John Burge, who was, um, I don't think he was actually tried for these cases. I think he was tried for perjury. Um, But the Chicago Police Department was sued by a variety of different people who had been uh, mistreated at the hands of the Chicago PD. And the torture technique that Chris is referring to is one where you use a modified field telephone to electrocute someone. And so, To what we do to at least illustrate in part, because, of course, they deny that this ever took place, um, to illustrate the foreign intervention connection, is that when testifying under oath, one of Burge's colleagues stated that he referred or had heard uh, Burge and others refer to using this technique on people who had been arrested in Chicago as, quote, the Vietnam special.
0: So what are the fixes here? I mean, when you think about torture, torture is not even acceptable overseas at least officially and uh in the united states it should be doubly so uh so to the extent that we want to end this kind of treatment of americans who we shouldn't forget have uh more have rights uh at least more rights than we respect in uh people in in foreign countries whether that's right or wrong uh so what are the fixes
2: Well, in general, moving beyond torture and just thinking about the different cases that we talk about in the book, so surveillance, militarization of police, the use of drones and and torture and and the threats that those things present, there's a variety of potential fixes. One, of course, is to uh, either enforce existing constraints uh, on people's behavior who possess that power or uh, 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 create new constraints. Uh, The issue there, of course, is that oftentimes there's not a political incentive to do that. The other way that we suggest to, to kind of fix this is to pull back the expanse, expansive uh militaristic foreign policy of the United States. Because when the US government engages, both prepares for and engages in these proactive military adventures, that requires certain things. Mainly it requires investments in developing and refining various tools and methods of social control. And really the point of the book is how those various methods and uh, uh techniques and innovations in social control end up coming back home. And so one of the ways to do it is not to invest resources in developing those things, which requires kind of pulling back on the expansive uh, uh, American bootprint that uh, really covers most of of the earth. and And so that's kind of the the broad vision for the fix. Uh, again, there's there's, you know, all these different constraints we could think about to limit government abuse, but there's just not the political incentive there to to implement or or enforce these things in any kind of meaningful way.
1: And one of the other things that we talk about, too, in the book, which I think is critically important, is the role that ideology plays on the part of the citizenry. So. Uh, what do citizens or what what is the the American population willing to tolerate to the extent that people are comfortable with an extensive surveillance state or they're comfortable with the use of militaristic or uh, highly aggressive policing tactics? I think you're really unlikely to see change, uh, me- meaningful change in either of those areas and, and others as well. But to the extent that these things are um, unacceptable or become unacceptable to the American population. Uh, We can and have seen cases where ideology has provided a powerful check on government and prevented government from reaching into other arenas, and even in some cases, government pulling back from arenas in which they've operated, and I, I think that there's potential there as well in addition to those items that Chris mentioned.
0: Chris Coyne and Abigail Hall are authors of Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.